All right, good morning. Um, first of all, I want to send on some thanks from someone in our congregation for all the, the prayers, and that's Linda Esquell. She's doing much better now, and so she wanted to express her gratitude and appreciation for the prayers, and she's doing much better, and uh, so thank you for her. Also, I uh, hope you enjoyed those passages that Bill read. Um, you know, if you don't do something a little bit outside the traditional boundaries, people don't even care. So I had a passage read from the inspired Word of God uh, that probably never got read on a Sunday. Uh, though I will say this, uh, Charlie Clough, who was my mentor, I, listened, I used to listen to his audio tapes. Remember those cassette tapes? Some of you remember 8-tracks, some of you remember records and things before that. But uh, when I was listening to one of his audio tapes, it was on uh, Christmas morning, and uh, he said, now turn to Deuteronomy 23, 12 to 13. This is our text, and uh, we've been studying verse by verse the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, so the Holy Spirit has something for us here today, and it was uh, Christmas Day. The text was on sanitation laws in the nation Israel. So uh, I'm not sure how that sermon was received, but it was a good one. All right, so... Uh, we're going to talk about some of those things because they're part of the Word of God, and uh, of course, we're talking about the doctrine of revelation, and we're going to see that the Word of God touches every area of life. It's not a religious book. It's a truth book. It's a book about all of reality. So uh, the Bible addresses these things. All right, so uh, let's take a moment before we do. We have an opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 as a mechanism to be restored to fellowship if necessary. That just means to... Uh, admit or to acknowledge your sin before the Lord and at that moment he cleanses us and restores us to fellowship and of course we want to be in fellowship in order to uh, be in a position where we're receptive to the things of the word of God uh, so let's now bow for a word of prayer and have a moment in the privacy of our souls Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the so great salvation we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has done it all, once for all, on the cross. He paid the penalty in full, and you are satisfied. And we thank you, Lord, that we can come to you freely, by grace alone, through faith in him alone, and thereby receive eternal life, receive the very righteousness of Christ placed to our account in the high court of heaven. And now we are free from the penalty of sin. <laughs> and free as we live by the Spirit from the power of sin. And one day we look forward to being free from the presence of sin altogether in the resurrection. We pray before that time that we are sanctified in our minds, that our thinking is transformed so that we are conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ more and more as each passing uh, day. And we pray, Lord, you'd open our eyes to behold the breadth of the word of God as Paul refers to it in Ephesians 3, that it touches every area of life, and it is a truth book. It's a book about the real world, and while some of the things to Israel are not directly to us, certainly there is wisdom embedded there for us. So help us to, to glean that wisdom and to consider it and how it may apply in our lives. And we ask these things in the name of the precious Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
All right, we have been talking about the great event of Mount Sinai. So if you haven't watched Charlton Heston, uh, Ten Commandments, this might be a good time in your life to watch that movie again. Uh, and then you can, uh, you know, say this is biblical, this is not biblical. But in any case, it'll give you food for thought in your imagination to see this great event. Now, in the midst of this, we get involved in law, ethics, and values because that's where God gave the law. And we contrasted uh, God's law with human law. And in the midst of that, I used an example related to the Holocaust. And uh, I'm leading up to a question that somebody asked about the Holocaust. So I want to uh, just briefly recap what we said about that. It was Judge Jackson at the Nuremberg trials in, 1940, in the late 1940s who said that law, human law, is transient and it's provincial. That is, it is limited in time and it is limited to a certain province or nation. And he said that if we're to judge the, the Nazis, the SS, on the basis of German law, he said we can't do that. Because if we do, then we'll have to set them free. And that is against conscience. So he said the only way we could judge the Nazis is we have to appeal to some higher law. And we know what law he's referring to because Romans 2, 14 and 15 talk about the law that all men have that is built into their conscience. And uh, so they appealed to some imaginary law in order to get a conviction. But the point was to show that even all humans recognize there is a law that is higher than nation, a nation's laws. And um, in the midst of that example, someone wanted to ask this question, how do you explain the Holocaust? Now, because that's an entire college course, I won't be able to give you an in-depth answer. Uh, but what I will do is give you a single-sentence answer, okay? And I'm not going to explain this sentence uh, very much because we don't have all day to do this. Um, but here is my single-sentence explanation for the Holocaust. The Holocaust took place because of a satanically energized movement against the Jewish people combined with a suppression of known truth of God in German culture at that time that resulted in a faulty view of ecology that demanded the cleansing of the land of the Jewish people, cleansing them out of the land, in other words, in order to produce a new environment fit for the German race to thrive. Um, it was uh, fundamentally an environmentalist movement, which that is in itself very interesting because we hear a lot about the environment today. We have to cleanse the environment from those who are attacking the environment, meaning we have to get rid of the oil people, we have to get rid of the carbon footprint people, whoever they may be in whatever industries they may be. Well, that's essentially what the Nazis were trying to do, cleanse the environment of Jews who in their, wor in their own words were raping nature. Under the auspices of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, which is a Jewish book, right? The Torah which taught that man was to subdue nature. And in Germany at the time, you had a back-to-nature movement. They had elevated nature above man, okay? And therefore, men who were the Jews, that is, using nature to subdue and bring it to fruitfulness, were destroying the environment in their minds and they needed to be cleansed from the environment themselves so that nature could go back to its natural state. Now, I know there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books on the Holocaust, okay, 
when I study any kind of a major event like the Holocaust or the Revolutionary War or the war between the states, uh, while it's interesting to try to read a hundred books, it's not very you know, tactful uh, to do so. So I choose an author who is in our frame of reference, who thinks according to the scriptural categories and read what they have to say to get their insight uh, from a theological perspective. Uh, on this event, I read Nazi Oaks by Mark Musser. And uh, he, went, he is a believer in our camp, and he attended one of the top one of the premier environmental uh, universities in our nation up in Washington State. And uh, he wrote this book, Nazi Oaks, which is a fantastically well-researched short volume on on why this is basically the answer to the question, okay? But uh, so now I want to move on because, again, we could spend all day on that. But um, in the end, ultimately, what did God use the Holocaust for? To bring the Jewish people back to their native homeland to begin to remember his Abrahamic covenant, which he will ultimately fulfill in the future in connection with the kingdom. But at any rate, that's what was going on in the sentence. Uh, So we want to continue with Mount Sinai and the law, and what we have done is got into the doctrinal fallout of Mount Sinai. We said uh, that that, um, the God that we serve is a public speaker. He speaks in human language, and men can understand And this has doctrinal consequences, namely three doctrines, the doctrine of revelation, okay, that indeed he has spoken, Uh, the doctrine of inspiration, that is how he spoke, how human involvement was in that process, yet without uh, distorting anything that the Lord wanted to say, and third, the doctrine of canonicity, that he had it uh, written down. So last time we worked on the doctrine of revelation, And uh, we should remember that we ought to be very grateful that he's spoken because um, we're sinners, right? He didn't have to speak a single word to the human race. He's not required to do that, okay? So, um, but he did speak. So it must be solely related to his grace. Now, we want to go further into the features of Revelation. There are five. um, And if we look... At Revelation, okay, the act of Revelation itself, what we have is God, who is omniscient, and he's speaking to man, and he made man in his image to be a receiver, to be a receiver of God's language. Um, So while he is unlimited and infinite, and we are limited and finite, yet we can receive God's language, okay? So the link between God and man is fundamentally a language link. That's what we share. And uh, if we weren't made in his image, we couldn't receive, and so forth and so on. So language started with God, and here is the deal about language, another fascinating point. The first and primary purpose of language is for God to communicate with man. Okay? Only secondarily is it to be a tool between human beings. That means that our first and primary relationship must be with him, okay? and then secondarily with humans. Okay? So, under the doctrine of revelation, we have five characteristics. The first one we said last week was uh, verbal. It's verbal. By this we mean the very words, okay? Um, Why do we even bother saying something like this? Of course, it's words, okay? Well, because we live in a new age. And in the new age, we're getting all this influx of Eastern religious ideas into our culture. And um, it's characteristic of Eastern religions 
to reject verbal revelation. And in place of that, they substitute what is called meditation, okay? Contemplation, uh, having a mystical experience, okay? So if you study Buddhism, Zen, or Hinduism, some of the Zen people will come out with puzzles like, um, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Okay, and they like to keep these puzzles coming because what they want you to do after you've listened to them enough and all their puzzles is agree that you can't know God through words so that all that is left is contemplation or meditation. Okay, and this has deeply infected uh, Christian circles. In Christian circles, it's called contemplative spirituality or contemplative prayer, okay? which is basically an attempt to take Eastern religion and join it to Christianity to get sort of a hybrid spirituality that can sound like Christianity because it uses a lot of the words, but it's not Christianity at all because in Christianity, God speaks in words. In Eastern religion, God does not speak in words. So it's a direct contradiction, okay? But this is what is taking place, and it's a denigration of the word of the living God. So we are fighting this, and we are fighting it because this is no different than magic, occultism, seances. It's all trying to bypass words in order to get feelings, to have experiences that make a deep impression on us, okay? But it's all nonverbal, okay? So we emphasize the very first point of doctrinal revelation is that it is verbal. It is in words as I am speaking to you now. The second characteristic of revelation we said is it's personal, okay? Another very fundamental idea. Why do you even have to say it? Well, obviously because in a personal relationship, there has to be shared language. So we are in a relationship. He's personal. He made us personal in his image. And so the connecting link, again, is language, okay? Um, Now, that said, okay, A major reason we have to say it's personal is because there are many worldviews that do not believe in the infinite personal God. Okay? Take uh, a materialistic worldview where all is material, all is physical. It can be weighed, it can be measured, tasted, touched, okay, by the five senses. A materialist worldview. In that worldview, what is ultimately behind everything is an impersonal universe, okay? There's nothing but molecules, now, how do, you get mo- how do you get personality out of molecules? Okay? It's just chemical reactions that are taking place. There's nothing really there as far as true personality. There's only the appearance of personality. It's really just materialist cosmos. And that's all you are is just cosmic molecules thrown together. Now, no, the scriptures say you are a person, okay? that you are made in God's image, that you have a real personality. And so the only way you can get there is to start with an infinite personal God, a God who loves, a God who speaks, who reveals himself in language so we can know his love for us. So that's the second thing we emphasize. The doctrine of revelation, we say revelation is personal. Okay? The third characteristic of revelation is that it is intermittent. And what I mean here is that God is not continuously speaking in language all of the time. He will speak at certain times in history, and then he will go on silent. Then he'll get back on the loudspeaker, and he'll say something, and then he will go silent, okay? And I showed a few examples in the book of Genesis between Joseph and Moses in the book of Exodus. 
you have a period where God is silent for 400 years. Okay? And then God breaks that silence, and beginning with Moses, there's a whole series of prophets all the way until Malachi. And then what? Between Malachi and the first book in your New Testament, Matthew, you have another 400 years of silence. Okay? So when God goes silent, what is he telling us to do? Think about what he said. Okay? Think about what he said. So right now in history, since the close of the book of Revelation, he hasn't spoken for over 1,900 years, uh, in spite of many charismatics and Pentecostals who say that they're getting a fresh word from God in tongues or they have prophets or something else. Uh, God has not spoken and will not speak again until just before the return of Christ. Uh, Joel mentions that just before the return of Christ, God will send prophets. Okay? Malachi mentions a prophet by name who will return, whose name is Elijah. And the book of Revelation discusses two witnesses who are prophets who will be sent. So my point here is simply to say that God is not speaking and will not speak and does not speak to every generation, okay? but he goes silent for periods of time. And uh, if he didn't, and if he just was continuously speaking to every generation, the question becomes, why do we even need the Bible? Why do we need a Bible? Why do we need to study the Bible? If, if you have a question and God is speaking to every generation, just ask. And uh, he can give you the answer. No need to go to a Bible, see? So the, idea, the very idea of the Bible itself is contradictory to the idea that God speaks to every generation. Now, yes, he speaks to every generation in the Bible. That's, that's to be understood. But we mean through a prophet or some, something like that. Okay. Now, we've dealt with those three um, characteristics of the doctrine of Revelation. We want to press on to the fourth and then the fifth today and spend most of our time on the fifth. So the fourth one is this. It's prophetic. Okay? And, of course, you know certain prophets in the Bible, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, Amos, you know, name any of these men. And these were all sent to be prophets, that is, mouthpieces of God. Okay? So when he spoke into history, when he revealed himself in language, he didn't bypass men normally. Uh, he did at Mount Sinai. He literally, it says the finger of God, wrote it on those tablets, right? But usually he spoke through a human, and this is what we will call inspiration next week when we study it in detail. But the main point I want to make about these prophets and the fact that the revelation is prophetic is to say that God revealed things to these prophets that otherwise could never be known. You could spend a million years okay, contemplating these ideas that uh, God may have in his mind, okay, but you could never know if they were really thoughts in his mind unless he revealed them. Okay? And here is where we uh, come to something that distinguishes the biblical prophets okay, from the prophets like in, say, Islam, or uh, Mormonism, something like that. And that is that whenever you see God's prophets come on the scene, their lives overlap in a big, long chain. Okay? Okay, now, I'm not saying God never goes silent. I'm just saying when he's speaking, he will usually speak for at least two or three generations and usually longer, okay, in a big, long chain of prophets that is unbroken. Okay, for example, Moses. 
Then Joshua, okay, both prophets, two men's lives who overlap, okay. Then God raised up the judges, okay. Then Samuel, then Nathan, Abijah, it, it goes on and on. And that chain of unbroken prophets goes on for over 1,400 years, okay. Then there is a break, as we said, okay. But then when you come to the New Testament, once again, all of a sudden, you see Simeon. You see Anna. And, of course, the prophetess. And here we go again, Christ, Paul, Peter, and so forth. Uh, two or three generations there, over 100 years, he's speaking. Okay? He's even speaking before the birth of Christ, right, to Mary and to Joseph and to Zacharias. Okay? These people okay, become prophets in the plan of God. So this is very interesting that he will link them together in a chain so that what? So that this is not just one person coming along saying, do this. Okay, this is a whole series or chain of people saying, this is the word of God, this is the word of God, this is the word of God, this is the word of God. So that one guy can say, now, wait a minute, you said this and God is telling me this. These two things can't be true. Oh, yeah, well, one of us, it really isn't a prophet of God then. So they could check each other's work, so to speak. Okay, here is a uh, quote from a Jewish scholar about this. Um, He's a Jewish and he is talking about how this observation about how Jews had these overlapping prophets, but you never saw that in Gentile nations. People claim to be prophets, of course, but they don't have this feature. Here's what he says. What makes the history of Israelite prophecy sui generis, that just means unique, what makes the history of Israelite prophecy unique is the succession of the apostles of God that come to the people through the ages. Such a line of apostle prophets is unknown in paganism. So yeah, in other religions, you have a prophet who pops up here, a prophet who pops up there, but you never have this unbroken chain of prophets who can check each other's work. Islam, for example. The whole thing hinges on what one guy says the word of God was to him. Okay? Muhammad had a vision, you know? I mean, heck, if I followed every guy that had a vision, you know, I'd be all over the place. Okay? Uh, or take the Mormons, Joseph Smith, you know, and the gold plates and all that kind of stuff in the early 1800s. Am I really just going to follow, like, one guy's word? One guy? Really? Okay. In the Bible, see, no, there's a succession of prophets' lives. Each prophet can check the prior prophet, or, or check himself with the prior prophet's work to see if their ideas line up with what has previously been written in as the Word of God or not. Okay. That is only true, it is exclusively true, it is an absolute truth that this is only found in the Bible. Okay? Now, th- this is a major point for our side. I don't know if you ever realized that how you can use this in a discussion with someone trying to sort these things out. We're, we're not arguing with them. Uh, we are able here to just remain calm okay, and just point out this is a unique feature of the Bible. Isn't this interesting? Okay? Because you can't show in any other religion that to be the case. Okay? So this is just an objective idea. Now, that's the fifth or fourth point. The revelation of God is prophetic. Now we want to press on and spend most of our time in uh, this fifth point, and that is that it is comprehensive. The revelation of God is comprehensive, meaning that he speaks to every area of life. Okay? Now why? Why does he speak to every area of life? Well, because he created everything, and therefore he created every area of life. Okay? So he has something to say about everything, and we're going to look at this from the standpoint of the Mosaic Law. Okay. Um, 
A problem is that, you know, we're not too familiar with the law because, you know, we're dispensational. And uh, we hold that we're not under the law. Christ fulfilled the law. So what do we tend to do? We tend to somewhat neglect the law, the study of the law. But what does Paul say? Like in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, The law was given for our instruction. Okay, it was given for our instruction. So we may not be under the law, but there are certainly wisdom principles in the law. And we'd be foolish to neglect them okay, and not look to them. And ask, as we study these laws, why were these laws given? And what might these laws say about issues that people face in modern societies? Okay, So turn to Deuteronomy 12. And we're just going to kind of move uh, chronologically through the law and pick up some of the major areas that God speaks with. And when he starts off, which he starts off here in Deuteronomy 12, he's basically given all of his introduction. He begins in chapter 12. And uh, look how he begins. Okay, Idolatry. The first area he wants to discuss is idolatry. He does that right from the start. Okay. He says in verse 1, These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their ashram with fire, and you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. And every archaeologist said, Oh, you're destroying culture. You're destroying... Okay. Verse 4, you shall not act like this toward the Lord your God, but you shall seek the Lord at the place with the Lord your God, uh, your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. Now, why is the Lord so concerned that when they go into the promised land under uh, Joshua and they have the conquest, that they utterly wipe out all these idolatrous temples in the land? Okay? They had these, if you notice in verse 2, they had these built up on hills under groves of trees. Okay. Why do you need to wipe those out? Okay, because that's where the pagans worshipped. Okay. And what they would do is they would find high hills with groves of trees, and they would build their temples up on these. Okay. And that's where they would engage in acts of male and female prostitution. Okay. Remember, these were the Canaanites. Okay, and why did they engage in prostitution? Because they were fertility cults. Okay, and they believed that the way to manipulate their God was through sexual acts. Okay, that's how they communicated with their God because they didn't have a language link. So they had to communicate by physical acts that communicated to them what they wanted the God to do for them, which was to do what? Produce fertility in their wives, produce fertility in their goats produce fertility in their cows, produce fertility in their fields, so that they could do what? So they could make lots of money. Money. Okay? So, the Israelites, when they go into the land, what should they do? They should destroy those places. Okay? He says, I have a place that I want you to come and seek my name, and I will point it out. It, it comes to be Jerusalem. And the way that you come and approach me is not through sex. The way that you do it is through sacrifice. Okay? So God was very concerned from the very start that Israel not worship idols. Okay? That has got to be at the very start of the society. Okay? 
The start of the society has to be, we're not going to start with worshiping something man has made. Okay? Because once we are worshiping something that we have made, then we are the ones that are carving out the gods. We make the gods in our own images, and we are simply defining reality, and we're no longer listening to the God of the universe. So, from the very start of this society, God said this, no idolatry, okay? No idolatry. Now, idolatry, of course, just briefly, it's, it's, it's something that, of course, it goes beyond the imagination, and it showed up in these temples on these hills under the groves of trees and so forth. Uh, and all that, all these things that they had to obliterate. But where is the idol, idol problem really? The real problem is not those objects. It's the imagination that's behind it, right? Okay. Now, the Bible's not against imagination. The Bible is pro-imagination. But it's saying, fill your imagination with the things of God so that what? So that you're constantly thinking about the things of God. Here is why I think, this is my personal theology, we don't know a lot about what heaven will be like. We are just given some ideas. In fact, we know more about hell than we know about heaven. There's more in the Bible about hell than there is about heaven. But he gives us just enough about heaven to do what? To fill our imagination so that we do what? So that we try to fill in the blanks. That is what, this is a godly use of imagination, okay? To talk about those things and try to figure them out and sort them out, okay? Um, we can't be dogmatic about our conclusions, but he's given us just enough to get the imagination rolling, right? And then he leaves the, the rest to us, crafted in God's image and being conformed to his likeness, to, to try to sort it out. And not fill our mind with all the things of the world. See? That's where we get in trouble. Second area that uh, the revelation of God touches. Worship. Okay, this may sound like it's the opposite of idolatry, right? Verse 10. Verse 10. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security... Then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings which you will vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice. Look at this. Look at this verse closely. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion of inher or inheritance within you. Verse 12 is fascinating. Um, you shall rejoice. You're going to go where? To Jerusalem eventually. And it looks like a big party is going to be going on in Jerusalem. And it is a big party. Okay? They came. They feasted. Okay? In fact, they took 10% of their annual income. And they spent it all on this one big party in Jerusalem. 10%. Imagine taking 10% of your annual income and spending it on whatever you want at this big party, okay? Do you think they had fun? Boy, howdy, they had fun. It wasn't like, oh, I don't think you should get that on the menu because it's $85. Just get the meat and enjoy it, okay? Don't even think twice about it. Now, as powerful as the God of Scripture is, look at this. He wants them to come, and he wants them to enjoy his presence, okay? Now, another thing you might have missed in verse 12, that's worship, right? That's worship. Another thing you might have missed in verse 12 
is did you notice who, who was to go and rejoice there? Of course, in verse 12 it says, you and your sons and daughters, and who? Your male and female servants. Servants! I mean, in the ancient world, I thought servants, they were like a low class, okay? But notice how the Lord says, hey, they may be servants, but does that mean they don't get to enjoy worshiping before the Lord? No. Everybody has a right to serve before the Lord. There were no class distinctions in this respect. What would that do for this society? What would that do for any society? It would be a powerful unifier in society. It would unify people. What it's saying is that even servants, see, are made in the image of God and they have equal value as humans. And what does this prevent? Something we are struggling with in this country. Okay? Class warfare and so forth and so on. So God just cuts all that off right from the start. He says, nah, we're not going to have any of that. That's baloney. That's phony baloney. So we've seen idolatry, worship. Now let's go to diet. Deuteronomy 14.3. Deuteronomy 14.3. You say, we can't talk about diet in church. I mean, that's more offensive than politics. <laughs> well, God talked about it. So in chapter 14, God addresses, verse 13, he says, you shall not eat any detestable thing. Then he goes on in verse 4, and he starts describing all the things they can eat. In verse 4, the, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the deer, and every hill country person said, Amen, we can shoot deer and eat deer. Uh, the gazelle, we can shoot exotics too. Uh, the roebuck, the wild goat, etc. But look at verse 7. Here's what you should not eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of those among those, these among those which chew the cud, or among those that divide the hoof in two, the camel, you don't eat camel, the rabbit, you don't eat rabbit, and the chiffon. For though they chew the cud, they do not divide the hoof. They are unclean for you. The, the pig, because it divides the hoof but does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. You should not eat any of their flesh nor touch their carcasses. Don't even touch. Don't even touch, okay? So, um, practically, if this is the law for the nation Israel, what did this do just on a day-by-day -day basis? I mean, let's say you're a Jew and you're traveled to Phoenicia. Okay, or over to Syria. You're on a business trip. Now, can you sit down and just have a meal with people from other nations? I'm not going to be able to do that. The law was not, when in Syria, do as Assyrians. The law was, you're a Jew, do what God said. Right? But we also have to go on and wonder, was there something more about the food types that God decided on for them? Uh, such as maybe nutritional benefits or dangers from eating certain foods that they couldn't know about because they don't have all the modern technology we do, but he knows because he's omniscient. For example, it was pigs, okay? Is there something in the meat of pigs that was unhealthy, okay? We just wonder, we just wonder, okay? Certainly, if you look at verse 12, some of the birds in verse 12, you, you probably don't want to eat those like the vulture and the buzzard. I mean, is that what you want to eat? You know, the things that are eating the dead deer on the side of the roads out here? You want to go have some of that for breakfast tomorrow? How many people are going to come up, show up if I guarantee we're going to have buzzard, you know, some vul turkey vulture tomorrow morning that I found you know, right down the road from my house? Uh, no. Why? Because those, those creatures, which we love because they clean it all up, right? But they eat dead flesh, and dead flesh carries disease, and we don't want disease. So maybe there is something about a nutritional and health benefit that's built into following 
a diet like this that God gave Israel. I'm not being dogmatic. I'm just saying let's think about it. Let's, we obviously already have because nobody here eats turkey vulture. Guarantee you. Not a person in here ever ate one. Anybody? Anyone want to raise their hand volunteer that they did? Maybe on a double dare? I don't know. Okay. Diet. How about the fourth area? Deuteronomy 14.21. Animal rights. Deuteronomy 14.21. This is interesting. Okay. Uh, not animal rights like we would see today in our culture, but animal rights. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And he said, that's sort of strange. I mean, and commentators, of course, argue about this strangeness, what exactly it means. Um, the reigning opinion is because the Canaanites considered it a delicacy to eat a young kid or goat boiled in its mother's milk. They considered that like we would filet mignon. Okay? And the Israelites were to be separate, so the reigning opinion is that they shouldn't do that, okay? just be separate. But is, is it also possible that there's something about being sensitive to animals here? Okay? Because what you're, what you're doing then is you're taking the very sustenance of the baby goat, what it lives on, its mother's milk, and then you're boiling it in it. Okay? So you're taking the substance that gives the little baby goat life, and now you're boiling it in it. Is there something here about a mistreatment of animals, a disrespect for God's creation, okay? And is it telling us animals aren't to be treated like nothing, okay? God made them. He made them with a specific form and a function to reveal things about himself, right? Otherwise, he couldn't say, John could not look at Jesus and say, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why would he use an animal? Because there's something about the way the lamb dies, okay, that would be indicative or related to the way that Christ died, okay? So he, you treat the animals with, with respect, okay? Um, another mention of this was back in the Ten Commandments. When it comes to the Sabbath day, they were to, to rest, right? You and your sons and your daughters, and who else? And all the animals, you weren't supposed to work the animals or, or give them some kind of labor on the day of, of Sabbath. So they got a day off just like everybody else got off. That's respect for animals' rights, okay? Interesting, interesting. Can we consider those things, the way we handle animals today? Sure, I hope we do. Um, Christians ought to be developing these things. Fifth area, okay? Uh, turn to 15.6. 15.6. This one's interesting. Boy, if this isn't a commentary on our nation, I don't know what is. National debt. Deuteronomy 15, 6. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you, and you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. And you will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. Okay, Israel was not to lend money to other nations. Um, or they were to lend money to other nations, but they were not to borrow from other nations. Why? Well, because if you borrow money from other nations, well, now they rule over you, now they control you, and they can get their nitty-gritty hands in your legislation, too, through their influence. And isn't that exactly what's happened in this country? What's the national debt? <laughs> you know, this isn't a comedy program, okay? But it's astronomical, okay? But if, if you loan to other countries, on the other hand, you loan to other countries, you have the upper hand. See, you have the power. You rule the other nations. 
And so this is just a little piece of legislation lodged in an ancient text. But, you know, I mean, maybe it sheds some light on reality in the way we should construct our policy as a country, right? So do you see how God has addressed every area of life? Okay. There's more. Verse 7, the very next verse, okay? This addresses loans, okay? Making a loan, like a personal loan. If there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns in the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying, hmm, you know, the seventh year, the year of remission is coming up. You know, I don't think I'm going to give this guy what he needs, okay? That would be having a hostile eye toward your poor brother and giving him nothing, and then he may cry out to the Lord against you, and it will be sin in you. Okay, it goes on, but the point here is that you shouldn't withhold a loan from a brother who's in need because the year of remission in Israel was the seventh year, and that's when you just released all loans, and that was the end of the deal. So here they come along, you know, let's just say it's a year or two before the year of remission, and you say, you know, they're just not going to be able to pay off the loan, so I'm just... I think I'm not going to give them the loan because I know I'm not going to get paid back. Okay? But they weren't supposed to do that. See, God would bless them if they showed them compassion and he would make sure it all worked out. Okay? He would make sure it all worked out. So he speaks to loans and having compassion for someone in need. Okay? And the reason he does that is because he speaks to every area of life. Okay? Um, this one's interesting. I probably won't have time for all these, but this one's interesting. Deuteronomy 17.6. A couple chapters over. Laws of evidence. You know, uh, witnesses in a court of law. Okay, so he speaks to the judicial system. Verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be to put to death on the evidence of one witness. Okay, is this wisdom? And not, it doesn't just have, it has to be eyewitnesses, okay? Two or three eyewitnesses minimally, okay? You can't have just one uh, in a capital case because, well, if you just have one, I mean, maybe they're fabricating this thing, right? So you have to have at least two or three, and uh, even if you have an eyewitness, a single eyewitness, that won't hold in an ancient court of law in Israel, Okay? Because God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'd rather err on the side of caution here and let someone go than I would to err on the side of being wrong. And now someone who is innocent is executed. Okay. And then notice um, verse 7. This is an interesting parcel of wisdom. The hand of the witnesses. So let's say the guy was convicted. Okay, you've got two or three people that said, we saw the guy murder. <laughs> so now what happens? The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So who, what's the bit of wisdom here? You don't have a guy that's hired to do a job of doing the executions, okay, and that's his job for life. No, you have the people who witnessed against him. They're the ones who begin the execution. Why? Because think about what you're doing if you're committing perjury. Now you are doing what you accused him of doing. 
And so that brings a, a little bit more seriousness to it. Am I really going to stand in a court of law and lie about what this person did or did not do? Okay. Uh, eighth area. Okay, laws for the king. Chapter 17, verse 18. Chapter 17, verse 18. Laws for the king. They're not, you know, to be above the law. Okay. Verse 18. This, oh boy, this is a good one. Now, it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. So here comes, a, they didn't have any kings yet, you know, human kings, but they're going to come. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. The king was supposed to read the word of God. Okay, What if we had that in our country? Huh, that might be interesting. Yeah. Uh, a couple things might change. Okay? Not, not, but look, not only do they have to read it, they have to write their own copy by hand. Okay? And they have to keep it with them wherever they go. Okay? Uh, Mr. President, what will you be taking on the trip? Well, you need to get my copy of the Torah that I made when I was inducted into office. Because okay? I've got to have that. I've got to read that every day. Okay? So no, that's number one on my checklist. Can you imagine? Wow. And uh, to do what? They're to read this every day so they, they learn what? That they themselves as king are not God. Okay, but God is God, and I'm the king, and I'm responsible to obey God. And that way, the king doesn't th come along thinking he's some kind of big shot. But no, he, he's just another member of society who's serving. You know, they used to call it minister of state, minister of tourism, whatever. It's because what? What are these people in these offices supposed to be doing? Ministering. It's another word for serving. It's a service position. Okay? But now, you know, we don't have that, and... You know, people in Washington think they have their own great ideas and so forth, so they poo-poo the Bible. Okay. Well, no. we have to live in the midst of the poo-poo. Thanks a lot. You know, maybe you ought to read the Bible. A ninth area. Okay. Let's skip this one. Let's, uh, let's go to 22.5. Deuteronomy 22.5. Sorry, but it's just reality. You know. We're not here to be religious, okay? I'm not here to be religious. I'm here to tell you the truth, okay? Like it or not. Not here for me. We're here for him, right? Deuteronomy 22.5. Gender laws and cross-dressing. People think this is something new in the 21st century all of a sudden. This isn't new. Look at this. This is 4,000 years old and people are doing this. A woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination of the Lord. Uh, but, okay, but why? Okay, it's great to say you shouldn't do that. But why? Why, do you, why is this in there? Why is this a con their concern that you know, a woman dressed like a woman and a man dressed like a man? Well, first of all, because of gender distinctions. I mean, um, because God created male and female and... Once you start confusing that, okay, you not only confuse male and female, but you have introduced also role confusion. You know, like role confusion, like what, what am I built for in life? How, how am I designed to live? Okay, you confuse all that. Um, 
what were we designed to do? Okay, males. Males have a particular design. We do not bear children. No human male ever bore a child. We're not, why? Why not? Why can't we have that? Because we're not designed anatomically or physiologically for that. Okay? Females have a particular design. Okay? Like it or not, it was not to have hand-to-hand combat. Like it or not, it was not, they're not designed for that. Okay? You know, guys, I, I've used this illustration before, but we, lots of us carry a little pocket knife or something, and sometimes we need a screwdriver. But all we have is what? A pocket knife. So we try to use our, pocket, our little pocket knife that we got at Ace Hardware to you know, get this screw loose or tight. And in the process, what do we do? We break the tip and turn it into a screwdriver. <laughs> right? In other words, here's a tool. It has a design, and it's not built to be a screwdriver. That's why it breaks. Okay? Males and females are the same way. We're outfitted, constructed, designed for particular roles in society, particular functions. And whenever we step out of those, we may be able to do those things to some extent, but usually not very well, you know. Um, men, for example, are not designed for nurturing children. Can we do it? I mean, a little, but we're mostly like, eh, honey, what do you do with this thing? And um, the reason isn't because we're dumb, okay? The reason is just because we're not built for that, Okay. Same thing for women. There's no, no woman who's dumber than any man. We're all human being, okay? We're all equally intelligent as males and females. But there are just certain things that women are not geared for. They're not built for those things. Um, so for distinctions to maintain those, God says there are certain laws for how we should dress. Where am I going? Wrong way. Sorry. Um, Let's turn to the next one in 23. We've looked at all these so far. I skipped uh, rules of warfare, but there are rules, and uh, we just looked at gender laws and cross-dressing. Now let's look at sanitation. Wouldn't be complete if we didn't talk about sanitation. And again, I want you to ask yourself, if people throughout history had looked at these laws and read the Word of God and had the Word of God accessible to them, might they have done things differently in their cultures? Okay, Here's one. You shall also have a place outside the camp and go out there, and you shall have a spade among your tools, and it shall be when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and shall turn to cover up your excrement. Okay. Do you think the people in Europe in the Middle Ages would have benefited if they could have read the Bible rather than having it in a scholastic language of Latin, which was not accessible by most people? How many lives do you think could have been saved in Europe, in the Middle Ages, if people read this and said, you know, maybe we shouldn't throw our waste out the window so it ran down the street. I mean, friends, when the word of God is kept from a society, what are they left with? Only their human faculties. Y'all remember, uh, comes to mind, the uh, scientist Simmelweis who was involved in delivering babies in a certain hospital several hundred years ago. And he noticed some things when he watched doctors move from one patient 
to another patient, to another patient. He noticed that if one patient was sick, these people didn't just work on this woman, and then they go to the next patient, and guess what happened? This patient ended up getting sick and dying, and this one got sick and dying, and whole wards of women were dying. And he said, you know, what if, what if people wash their hands? What if people wash their hands, you know? Like it kind of says about clean water in the book of Deuteronomy. Maybe then, and, and he proposed this idea, look him up, Simmelweis, okay? The guy was laughed out, okay? And he studied and researched and did all this and found, of course, this is, you're transmitting germs. You're transmitting germs. All you have to do is stop and go wash your hands for 30 seconds, right, with soap and water under warm, you know, running water, and then you won't have these germs and you can go to the next patient. That's fine. No, 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 no. They wouldn't do it. The guy literally in his life, you study the rest of his life, he basically went insane because he, could, he was trying to save these people, but they, nobody would listen to him. Of course, they discovered later, that's kind of the most important thing. You know, what is it we're all going to do after we get done shaking hands here? We're going to go wash our hands. Okay, we're not going to touch our faces. We're, we're going to go wash our hands because we don't know. Somebody could be carrying something. We love you and all that, but after this, we don't want to get sick. Okay? All right. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe there's just something to these laws that goes beyond just being separate. Maybe there's some wisdom hidden in here. Okay, I think we've seen enough. Okay, rules for idolatry, worship, diet, animals, national debt, rules of warfare, gender and dressing laws, sanitation, every other thing you can think of is also in here. The revelation of God is impressive and comprehensive. Okay, so the doctrine of revelation. Okay, this is not an abstract doctrine. When you go home and rent the Ten Commandments, <laughs> okay, and you watch Charlton Heston, okay, or whatever you do, this is your picture. This is not a kid's story. This is the real world, okay? And I don't, there's not everything good in that movie, but still, you can envision what? That the revelation of God is, number one, verbal. Not an impression. It's actual words. God spoke, okay, at Mount Sinai, and it was heard. Personal, because he's a person, and he's addressed these things to you. It goes right to our heart. In fact, we read it every Sunday. Hebrews 4.12, just about we read it. The word of God is living and active, judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Third, it's intermittent. You know, he doesn't talk all the time, but when he does speak, you better listen. Okay? When he doesn't, you better remember. That's why the Bible's so important. Fourth, the revelation is prophetic. He has a line of prophets that go unbroken down through history so they could check each other's work. Okay? And fifth, the last one, the word of God is comprehensive. No detail of life is left unturned, and uh, that's because he's the creator of all these areas of life. Next time, we're going to look at the second doctrine that comes out of Mount Sinai. It's called the doctrine of inspiration. That gets involved in how are humans involved in the authorship of Scripture? How did God use humans? And finally, then, of course, the doctrine of canonicity. That talks about the boundaries of Revelation. Um, what books in Scripture are considered uh, Scripture? And that comes into conflict with Roman Catholicism, Islam, uh, Mormonism and other cults that in some way will change or add to the revelation. Okay, but basic stuff, but it all grows out of Mount Sinai. Okay? All right, let's close with a word of prayer. And uh, I know the ladies have a shower to go to, so uh, let's have a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to think these things. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, give us a mind to uh, envision the greatness and the grandeur of God speaking to a nation of over 2 million people.
and uh, the word of God coming to them. And the word of God comes to us in the word of God. And we have it, and we're grateful, Lord, because it stands as the link between you and us in this personal relationship we have with the creator of the universe. What a wonderful thing. And, of course, it's the link in Christ himself, who is the word become flesh. What a remarkable linkage all these things show between the word of God and us. And we pray, Lord, that we take the gospel, which is the word of God, what Christ has done, his death and his resurrection, and share that with the world because it is the power of God unto, God unto salvation for all who believe. What a blessing to be a part of your family and to know these truths, not because of ourselves, but because you have spoken. We ask that uh, bless the teaching in Christ's name. Amen.